You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Thanks, Dave. It's great to see you guys. It's good to be here. Like Dave said, I am new to the reality family. Uh, My family and I moved from Chicago to LA in January this year. A lot of people ask us, how's the transition going? And I tell them that when you're leaving Chicago in January, it's a great transition, (laughs) especially when you're going to LA. And so we have loved it. We love Reality San Francisco. I've heard so much about you and what's going on here. I had a lot of people who said, oh, say hi to so-and-so for me, but I couldn't keep track. So if you know somebody in LA, they said hi. But I am really glad to be here. And as I said, we we love Reality San Francisco. We are learning to love the city of San Francisco vicariously through you. I'm excited to bring the word. So open up your Bibles to Luke 18. I'm going to be reading Luke 18, 9 through 14. And then I'll pray. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us clarity, that we might understand your word, and that you would give us courage, that we might obey your word. Lord, we gather this morning as a people who are longing for approval. We are longing to be declared righteous. Lord, we ask that you would show us through your word that we have that through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Religion makes people do silly things. Now, I won't judge others on this, but I have plenty of material from my own life. You see, when you grow up in the church, you learn that there's a certain way of talking and acting that makes you acceptable. So we do things like you start using replacement swear words like son of a biscuit (laughs) or mother father. (laughs) And we even learn this kind of whole, this whole code of language where you start saying certain things that don't make sense outside of a church context so that I could say things like, you know, I'm just really in a dry season right now. Just uh, looking for a Proverbs 31 woman, you know. (laughs) Just need to pray for a hedge of protection over this. Can I just honestly say, I don't even know what a hedge of protection is. I've heard that. I think I've prayed it myself. And I have no idea what a hedge of protection is. But we start saying things and praying things that we don't even know what they mean. And it's not only in our language, it's also in our behavior. So, you know, you you show up to the potluck and what do we do as Christians? We give side hugs. You know why? Because side hugs are safe. (laughs) And we Christians, we can dance, but you got to remember this, when you dance, you got to leave room for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) 
So we have this kind of language and behavior that makes sense inside of this context, but outside, people have no idea what we're talking about. Religion makes people do silly things. But religion also makes people do hurtful things. I'll never forget the last day that I spent in the church that I grew up in. There was a new preacher and he was preaching and in the middle of the sermon, one of the elders stood up and apparently didn't like something that he said and started berating him in front of the entire congregation. He ridiculed him, he berated him, he cut him down to size in the middle of his sermon and then said, carry on, and everything went back into form. And the worst part of it wasn't just this man's actions, is that everyone sat there and watched it and did nothing about it because this man was the senior elder and had been around longest. And my family and many other families left the church that day and never went back. You see, a lot of people... I've had a bad experience with religion. And many people reject Jesus because of their bad experience with religion. They have a bad taste in their mouth. But here's the shocking truth. When we read the Bible, we see that Jesus went and the people he opposed the most were the religious people. You would think like Jesus, like Mr. Religious, right? Christianity. You would think that Jesus would go and take sides with the religious people. But he does the opposite. He doesn't take sides with them. He takes aim at them. He goes after them. He calls them names. And he goes and he's a friend of sinners. And here's why. Because there's two ways to reject Jesus. You can reject Jesus through reckless rebellion. We know about this. Drugs and alcohol and sex and going crazy and indulging in sin. But not only can we reject Jesus through reckless rebellion, we can also reject him through self-righteous religion. There's two ways to reject Jesus. You saw this a couple weeks ago in the story of the prodigal sons. That one goes off recklessly, indulging in sin, but the other clings to his own righteousness. So in the story that we're looking at today out of Luke 18, we see this through the lens of prayer. That how Jesus opposes this religious mindset, this religious framework. And see, this, this applies to us. Don't just think because we don't have pews and potlucks here that we get out of the religious critique. See, Martin Luther once said that religion is the default mode of the human heart. I think he's right. Because I think there's a gravitational pull that we have back towards trusting in ourselves and our own righteousness rather than in Jesus and in his righteousness. And so this parable that Jesus tells juxtaposes two prayers. One of the Pharisee, who is a religious bigwig of the day, and one of the tax collector, who is a social scum of the day. But what you're going to see is that behind each of these prayers is a completely different way of relating to God. One based on performance and the other on grace. And here's the great thing about this parable. Jesus tells this parable, but um, he actually interprets it himself. So some parables in the Gospels, you just have a parable and we've got to figure out, okay, what does this mean? But this is a great text and honestly an easy one as a preacher because Jesus not only tells the parable, he interprets it himself. 
And so if you look at the parable in Luke 18, the parable is actually verses 10 through 13. But the verses before and then the, verses, the verse after set it up and interpret the parable. So before he tells this story, he says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's contextualizing. He's saying these people trust in themselves and they treat others poorly. I need to tell them this story. And then he tells them the story and then afterwards he interprets it and he said, I tell you, this man went down justified. Then he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So in this parable, we see that prayer can either be a pompous proclamation of piety or a humble response to the gospel. And when prayer is a humble response to the gospel, it is expressed in trusting Jesus, loving others, and humbling ourselves. That's what we're going to see through this. Trusting Jesus, loving others, and humbling ourselves. So the first and the most obvious point of the story is that we should humble ourselves. So we see in verse 14 where Jesus tells the meaning of this, and he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisee went up above and went and prayed before everyone. He is exalting himself. The Pharisee's prayer might be the greatest example of a humble brag. Do you know what a humble brag is? A humble brag is when you boast about something, but you cloak it in false humility. This is like most of what Twitter is, is humble brags. You're boasting about something, but you cloak it to make it seem humble. And this man goes up and he tries to cover it up by saying, oh, I thank you, God. It starts by thanking God, but what is he actually thanking God for? Thank you that I am not like the other men. So it sounds so humble and religious, but he's boasting. He's exalting himself before others. And so it's easy to critique him. This is an obvious example. But how often do we, out of, do we operate out of pride and then cloak it in religiosity or Christian lingo? We step on people to get to the top and then we thank God for giving us the platform that we have. I think at the end of the day, honestly, many of us think that God is lucky to have us on his team. The man, God is lucky to have me. Has he seen my resume, my degree, what I bring to the table? God is so lucky to have me. And we start praying like God is our servant. God, would you do this for me? Would you do that for me? rather than recognizing that he's the king and that we are his servants. But God is not lucky to have us. God in his grace has drawn us into relationship with him. Let me, let me say this to you gently. God doesn't need you. Maybe that's not so gentle, but it's at least truthful. <laughs> so loving. But think about this. Before the creation of the world, God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community. That means that there was perfect giving of love and receiving of love, perfectly satisfied, perfectly happy. So that means that God doesn't create or God doesn't enter into relationship with you based on your greatness or even out of his need, but out of his abundance. That God is overflowing in love and the self-giving love that he has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
that he invites us into that out of his abundance. God's not sitting in heaven lonely, desperate, sitting there like, like a teenage girl waiting for that text message to come through on the phone. God is perfectly satisfied in himself. He doesn't need us. He has drawn us in graciously. The English pastor William Temple once said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. God doesn't need us. We need God. We need him. And being honest with ourselves, that's humility. Humbling yourself doesn't mean kicking yourself and beating yourself up. It means being honest with who you are before God and recognizing your need for him. Practically, this means everything. Because see, Jesus says, don't exalt yourself. He says, humble yourself. But, but this is what we do in life. We spend a lifetime exalting ourselves. I mean, isn't this what career is? Many of you have moved to, to the big city to make a name for yourself, to build your kingdom. And you are passionate about it. You do what you can do to get your name out there, to build your own little kingdom. But the grace of God flips all that upside down where we see that we were made not to make much of our own name, but to make much of the name for, of Jesus. And not to build our own little kingdom, but to live for his. And so Jesus flips this and says, we're not supposed to exalt ourselves. We're supposed to humble ourselves. We need to recognize our need for God's grace. See, every one of us will have a point in life when you hit the wall and you realize, I can't do it. And that's when a moment of defeat can turn into a moment of surrender because Jesus has done it on our behalf. We need humility to know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And we need the confidence that through Christ, we can do all things. And this has radical implications for prayer because prayer doesn't even make sense apart from humility. Of why would you pray if you don't think you need God? But see, here's the thing. If your prayer is not rooted in humility, then it would ultimately be an expression of piety. Here's what I mean by that. If you're not praying out of your need for God, then you're using prayer as a way to look religious or to tack it on to one more thing. Oh, I'm a person who prays. I'm well-rounded. I'm holistic. If you're not praying out of humility, out of your need for God, then you will be using prayer ultimately for your own self-righteousness. Listen to this, church. A life of prayer grows in the soil of this truth. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Do you recognize that need in your life? And can you humbly say before God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner. That's what this tax collector recognized, his lowliness and his need for God. And so we are called to humble ourselves. But the irony of this is that humility is actually a byproduct. So if you focus, if you obsess on your own humility, it'll actually just make you more prideful because then you're still thinking about yourself all the time. So to humble yourself, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. And have an honest view of yourself, you need to have a grand vision of Christ and his glory, who he is and what he's done. And when you do that, when you realize how big God is, then you stop obsessing with yourself and you see how small you are in light of how big that he is. So we've seen that we should humble ourselves 
But Jesus also tells this story so that we would love others. So think about the way that this, that this parable is set up. Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves because they were righteous, that's the first thing, and treated others with contempt. So let's look at those in reverse order. These, these Pharisees were treating others with contempt. Now here's the, here's the question. Why use a parable about prayer to address wrong action? It's interesting. If Jesus is concerned with the way the Pharisees are treating others, why would he tell a parable about prayer? Why not, terrible, why not tell a parable about treating others well? They have a problem. They're treating others with contempt. Why not tell a story about a guy who doesn't treat others with contempt? Instead, Jesus tells a parable about prayer. Perhaps it's because Jesus is showing us that prayer does not detract from, but actually catapults us into loving others. You see, so often we think of prayer purely as removing ourselves from everything to where it could be in competition. Well, do I love others or do I separate from others so that I can pray? But Jesus is showing us that prayer rooted in humility, rooted in recognizing God's kingship, actually leads us into loving others. You see, the Pharisee thinks that he is above others. He separates himself. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like this lowly tax collector. And so for him, prayer doesn't have anything to do with the way that he treats them because he's on a different level, man. He's praying up here. What does that have to do with these lowly people down here? But when you recognize your own lowliness, then you care for those who are lowly around you. When you recognize your own need for mercy, you're more eager to give mercy to others. So we see in this that prayer should not lead to passiveness, but to proactiveness. We see this in Jesus, who is the ultimate example. That Jesus would separate himself. He would go off alone to pray, but he wouldn't sit there navel-gazing and, and just going into kind of mystical experiences with the Lord that, that never actually send him back into loving others. He would go alone to pray, but that would send him back into loving others, to reaching out to others spiritually and physically. And so for us, this is so practical because not only should we personally be praying for people in our lives regularly, but our prayer for people should lead us to serving them and loving them. Now, corporately, this is, this is easy to think about in application because what do we have coming up next week? Serve the city. So our praying for the city of San Francisco should catapult us into serving the city of San Francisco. So pray this week for the city. Take time this week to pray for the city and see that is in connection to and building up to our going to serve the city. That Jesus calls us to pray out of humility, not so we would actually ignore others or even only pray for them, but it would send us into serving them. And so with what we've seen so far, you could say that humbling yourself is the most obvious application and that loving others is the most practical. But the last point is that we see that the heart of all of this is trusting in Jesus, not yourself. This is the foundation of why Jesus tells this parable and what he's getting after.
So look at verse 9 again, where it says, Jesus tells the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus sees these people who are trusting in themselves and in their own righteousness. And so he tells them this parable. You see, it starts off saying that the Pharisees trust in his own, their own righteousness. And it ends by saying that the tax collector is the one who leaves justified. See, this word justified in the Greek is actually the same word uh, or, or comes from the same root as the word righteous. So to be justified means to be declared righteous. So it starts showing that the, the Pharisee trusts in his own righteousness, but the tax collector leaves being declared righteous. So ultimately, this parable is about righteousness. It's this longing for righteousness. And when you hear that, maybe when you hear righteous, maybe that sounds so kind of religious and spiritual to you, and it is, but it's more being justified is a metaphor of being able to come before a judge and, and for him to declare you righteous or innocent. But here's how this plays out more practically in our lives. That we as human beings long for and search for approval. We want to know that people approve of us. This is why we, we make status updates on Facebook, and then we sit there like a fiend and check it to see who, how many people like it or comment on it. We, we long to know that people approve of us, that they look at us and they say, yeah, that person's amazing. That person is righteous. That person is good. That person is worth something. You see, the Pharisee and the tax collector both long to be approved before God. But they go about it in completely opposite ways. And this comes to the heart of the matter. That the two different ways of praying express two radically different frameworks. One based on religious performance and one based on God's grace. This is the story of self-righteous religion versus the gospel of Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness through a religious framework, is all about trusting in my own righteousness. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done and that we have his righteousness through faith. You see, religion is good advice about what you should do. The gospel is good news about what God has done in Christ. Religion seeks change through behavior modification without heart transformation. The gospel is about receiving a new heart that produces a new life. Religion always motivates by guilt. This is what you should do. The gospel motivates through gratitude. This is what God has done for you. And religion is always about me. The gospel is always about Jesus. This is what we see in this story. When, when the Pharisee prays, listen to how, it, how self-centered it is. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's looking at himself and using God. This is the difference. In religion, we use God to get to something else. Whether it's reputation, whether it's success, however you want to define it, whether it's health or wealth or prosperity, we're using God to get to something else. But according to the gospel, God himself is the treasure. 
The greatest good of the gospel is not all the things that God gives us, but that we get God himself. And so the danger of religiosity is that we can get sucked into pursuing all the things that Jesus talked about, all the while missing out on Jesus himself. You see, Jesus not only died for the forgiveness of our sins, but he rose from the dead that we might know him. We're not just talking about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. We're talking about the one who is the mediator to God, who is alive today. Jesus rose from the dead and we can know him. On Easter Sunday this year, I, I sent this guy a text message and I said, I said, Jesus is alive. And that means not only can we know about him, but we can actually know him. But when I sent the text message, autocorrect did its work and changed him, H-I-M, to Jim, J-I-M. So what the text message said to this guy was, not only can we know about him, but we can actually know Jim. <laughs> and I can just see this guy receiving the text message right when I think I have Christianity figured out, who is Jim? <laughs> oh no. But let me be very simple and clear to you. It's about Jesus, that we can know him, that he is alive, that he has not just called us to a, a set of rules or to a framework, but he has called us to himself, that we might know him and that we might follow him. And our righteousness comes from him, from his works, not from our own works. This is why the apostle Paul could say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now listen to this. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's about Jesus and his righteousness and that we receive that through faith. And here's the thing, as we're using prayer to, to, look through, to, to look through a lens to see how we understand God in general, this reminds us that prayer in and of itself means nothing. Prayer in and of itself means nothing. See, everyone prays. So I hope that it comforts you when your news anchor lets you know that, that their thoughts and prayers are with you. And that everyone's thoughts and prayers are with you. But prayer has no value in and of itself. It's the object of prayer that matters. And as Christians, we don't just pray so that we can be people of prayer. We pray to God the Father through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That it's not just about prayer. It's about God and that we can know him. And one of the greatest and, and most basic ways of knowing him is talking to him through prayer. This is why I can honestly say that I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God through prayer. And so the Pharisee trusted in his own righteousness. But the tax collector recognizes his own guilt and looks for a righteousness outside of himself. God is how he begins his prayer. He recognizes his sin and he looks outside of himself, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's not looking to his own righteousness, but externally, 
And when he says, when he says be merciful to me, this word merciful is really interesting because it's not the usual word for mercy that we see throughout the New Testament. It's a different word. In the Greek, it's helaskomai. And this word refers back to an Old Testament concept of atonement. This was the word in the Old Testament that was used to talk about the atonement for sins by the shedding of blood. And so this tax collector recognizes his own sin and his need to be made righteous rather than to build his own righteousness. And so he cries out to God. And Jesus, even Jesus telling this parable points forward to the cross where Jesus' blood is the ground for our justification before God. That by the blood of Christ, that God has been merciful to us. That he has atoned for our sins. Meaning that he has paid the price and he has reconciled us to God. When you hear that word atonement, it means at one meant. So sin has separated us from God where we are not at one. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, we are made one. We are reconciled to God by what Christ has done. This is the great exchange that Jesus has taken our sins that as we come before him and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that he takes our sins onto himself, that he pays the penalty for those sins by dying in our place on the cross, bearing the wrath of God that we should have received as people who were in rebellion against God but it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins and give us a clean slate. He gives us his righteousness. See, Jesus lived a perfect life, keeping the covenant that God, with God that we have broken. And his righteousness, he gives to us because we are united to him by the Holy Spirit. And so he takes our sins and we receive his righteousness but this justification comes through faith. It's for those who trust in Jesus, not for those who use religion as a way of resisting the grace of God, but who come before God as this tax collector did and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus answers that with the cross of taking our sins and giving us his righteousness. See, I get a lot of people coming to me and I've, I've, I've studied theology a lot and so I get a lot of people who come to me with questions and theology questions and I've got an intellectual problem. And so we hash out these things, but you know, honestly, most of the, you know, the intellectual discussions that I have come down to this, that behind that, people want to be Lord of their lives. People don't want someone else to be Lord of their lives. And honestly, we trust ourselves more than we would trust someone else. So why would I surrender? Why would I, why would I give everything over to God when I want to be Lord of my life? But my question that I so often ask is, who is more trustworthy, you or Jesus? Who is more trustworthy? Is there anyone, is there anyone to trust in more than Jesus? The one who lived a perfect life the one who loved selflessly 
And as we talk about humility and humbling ourselves, remembering that Jesus is the ultimate example, the one who humbled himself even to death on a cross. So may we trust in Jesus, not in ourselves. May our longing for approval be satisfied in recognizing that God approves of us in Christ. And so in Romans 8, it says that, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if we are in Christ, if you trust Jesus as your Savior, that you, you are not under the condemnation of God, but you are under the approval of God. That God looks to you and says, this is my child whom I love. With him or her I am well pleased. If you're not a Christian, who are you trusting in? And can you honestly say that they or you is more trustworthy than Jesus? Trust in Jesus. If you are a Christian, I want to remind you of what you already have in Christ. I went to a conference several years ago and I came back and I had a terrible time at the conference. And I told my wife, I said, I have a comparison problem. And I do this, I go and I compare myself to other people and then I start beating myself up. I'm not as good as them. I'm not like them. And so I told my wife, I have a comparison problem. And my wife, being the, the great wife that she is, asks me good questions and prods me with her questions. And she says, well, why do, why do you think you have a comparison problem? What's beneath that? And I say, well, these people go up at the conference and they speak and everyone looks at them and they say, wow, that person's amazing. And I want people to look at me and say, wow, I'm amazing. And so what we realized in talking about this and my wife asking questions is that I don't have a comparison problem, I have a gospel problem. And here's what I mean by that. That the, the gospel declares that the God of the universe looks at me and says, this is my child whom, in whom I love. I approve of you in Christ. That he sees the righteousness of Jesus in me and he loves me, and he accepts me, and he has taken me in as his child. And so here I am, looking all over the world for approval, when I already have all the approval that I need in Jesus Christ. So Christian, stop looking to the world for the things that you already have in Christ. Our search for approval is over, because in Christ God approves of us, and that is good news. Trust in Jesus. Give up on your own righteousness and trust in Jesus for his righteousness and receive that as grace from God. Our prayers should be marked by humbling ourselves, loving others, and trusting in Jesus. But ultimately, the way we pray shows that our relationship with God is not based on our performance, but on his grace. That is why we can trust in Jesus. Let's pray together now. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, sinners. Lord, we bring nothing to the equation but our own sin. As it says in the book of Isaiah, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before you. And yet we rejoice with thanksgiving for not only has Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness, but he has taken our sins and given us his righteousness. Lord, increase our faith that we might trust Jesus, that we might love others, 
that we would humble ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.